forward to um, working through this together today in Ephesians 6. For those of us that have been going through Ephesians, uh, you may notice you can see the end. <laughs> it's the last of the book of Ephesians, and we'll be going through that. I should be done within six months. Um, okay, no, okay, it'll be a little sooner than that. Some of you are like, uh-oh, we're in trouble. Um, but uh, you know, it's, it's great to see the, the end of the book, and as we're praying, I'll just say be praying for us as an elder team and, and talking as we look to the future sermon series and what we'll be going through as well as we're considering that. Um, you know, this week we're wrapping up our week of prayer and fasting. I just want to encourage us as a body. Uh, for those of you, if you weren't here earlier, is uh, Pastor Kevin was announcing, he let us know on January 28th, uh, we want to meet together right after Sunday service. So we'll do this over lunch, uh, lunch fellowship. And I'll just encourage you, you can sign up in the back. Uh, there are sign-up sheets uh, that the hospitality team is graciously getting us organized so we can have that, that time of a potluck and a fellowship together um, so we can share a time of fellowship. But we also want to use that time uh, to discuss our, our vision of 2024, what we're looking at even beyond 2024, discuss that as a body together. And then there's some, we do need to have a business meeting that week as well as we talk about our budget and our finances and what we're looking forward to uh, regarding staffing and for across the board in our ministries uh, of our church. And I uh, want to have just a meaningful and hopefully helpful discussion for us as a body. So I think it's critical if you can make sure to be here on January 28th for us as a body. Pray for that time. Right? Don't, don't just show up. Part of preparing for January 28th for us as a body is that we are praying ahead of time. And, I, and I'm just going to encourage you to be praying today, tomorrow, the weeks that lead up to this as we go forward, or praying for the future and direction of our church, uh, the healthiness of our body as we seek to glorify God together. You know, this week brings to close, our, or today brings to close this week of prayer and fasting that we as elders uh, decided to call our, our body to to begin 2024. I, I hope that some of you or all of you have participated in some way in this week through prayer, through fasting, whether it be from food or from other things. And, and today, in this final day of the week of prayer and fasting, I know for, for several of us, we're wrapping up the commitments we made in fasting and Today, uh, maybe lunch is your meal that you break uh, that fast, or maybe this evening, or maybe even you're going all day today and going to tomorrow morning. But I, I just want to give a last attention to prayer and bring our attention to prayer itself today. Um, many of you may remember back in the 90s, the first Gulf War. Uh, the armed conflict by which the United States, along with 42 other countries, sought to fr free Kuwait from Iraq. I mean, there's some of us here today that some of you that actually served in that first Gulf War. You may remember the, that prior to that, in August of 1990, started uh, Operation Desert Shield, in which the United States uh, put in troops and military equipment and armament to begin to defend Saudi Arabia from a potential invasion from the country of Iraq. And then that turned into Operation Desert Storm in January of 1991. I personally have a couple of very vivid memories from this time. I was actually in high school. This would have been in my junior year of high school uh, that I was in. And uh, you can do the math and figure out how old I am later. And for those of you who need help, I'm sure someone else can tell you. 
Um, but uh, it was my junior year of high school, and there, there's a couple of very vivid memories that I have. One actually came from about a year later in my senior year of high school. There was an Air Force pilot that came and visited our school, and there was a group of us that we got to meet with him. We met in our, our high school library, and I vividly remember him recounting uh, what he could to us of his participation in the air campaign of the bombing of Iraq. And he showed us the video that many of you may know that became famous as, uh, as uh, General Norman Schwarzkopf labeled it, the luckiest man in Iraq. Uh, if you remember that video, it's a little grainy, and what you see is the crosshairs of a bomb going towards a bridge, and you see a car driving by. And right as the car clears that bridge, it blows up right behind him. I, I can only imagine, you can't see it, I would have stopped, got out of my car, looked in the rearview mirror, said, okay, that wasn't my car, and then kept driving down the road, right? And, and Storm and Norman, as they called them, labeled this the luckiest man in Iraq. The other thing I remember is actually the day when the war actually started. I actually went back and looked to verify my memory was clear enough to, to what happened. What I remember for me is it was a school night, and I looked, it was January 17th of 1991. Uh, what I remember about this night is my dad and I spent it together. And uh, this will kind of date the time period and what was going on. I remember my dad had VHS tapes so he could record what was going on. And we sat into the wee mornings, the hours, and my dad recorded on these tapes what we were seeing on CNN. You may remember, I, I, I remember, and I actually went back and looked, you can now see all this on YouTube, that greenish, grayish with a black background and it would just have little lights in it of Baghdad itself in which you would see the anti-aircraft armaments being launched trying to to intercept uh, the U.S. and the coalition missiles and bombs and take down aircraft. I remember vividly remember seeing that and, and we're recording this and what was so revolutionary about it for us was that what we now consider common today, right? We have smartphones, we can video things, we can live stream as several of you saw last week, as Earl and I made our internet debut on our live stream show, we, we, we racked up a whopping, I think, two followers, and it happened to be him and me. But, uh, <laughs> so, uh, I mean, we had three followers, but, a couple, but our wives talked to each other, and they both dropped, so I guess they've been four. But anyway, so it's at least two of us that are left, but, you know, we are used to that now, aren't we? Right? I mean, just think about our current, I mean, the current situations whether it be in Ukraine and the war we see going on there, in the Israel in Israel and in the in Gaza and what's going on in that war. I mean, the near real-time video that we can see and can be produced is pretty amazing. But back in the early 90s, that was miraculous, basically. And the first Gulf War, you may remember, became known as the CNN War. Because CNN, who was really kind of still a fledgling news organization. They were 10 years old, but they were still trying to figure out if this 24 hours news network thing was going to work. And it actually is the war that put, if you know him, Wolf Blitzer, it put him on the map because he was live broadcasting from Baghdad what was going on in the war. It actually got him in trouble because when one of the Scud missiles, if you remember this, went over and hit Israel, he calls the Pentagon, he figures out where it hit, and he said on Live television will hit this neighborhood, and he immediately got called by a bunch of uh, military strategists. Go, what are you doing? <clears throat> They're trying to hit our military installations in Israel. You just gave them basic coordinates. Would you stop doing that? Right? 
But it, it was just this humongous novelty to us because at the time we'd never seen a war broadcast live. It always been something that we got a little later. I mean, even during the Vietnam era where they could video things, it would take a day or two or maybe more to edit and get these things on television. You know, what's interesting is after the CNN war, what it led into was the presidential election. You may remember, for me, this was the first presidential election I ever voted in. Uh, it was, at the time, George W. George H. W. Bush, the first President Bush, was President of the United States. And after the war finished in, in March of 1991, when we wrapped up and, and basically declared victory and said, hey, we won the war, he enjoyed about a 90% approval rating among the American populace. High approval rating. But within a year, his approval rating had already dropped down in the 60s and was dropping. And he was in the midst of a presidential campaign, and we as a nation were in the midst of a recession. And you may remember what became famous words that came out of the Bill Clinton campaign. It's the economy. Yeah, someone said it. Stupid. I heard you say it, right? Yeah, okay. My mama told me I'm not supposed to say that word. It's in the Bible, but it's the economy. Do you remember this? What's interesting about that, that was not the original intent. It effectively became the, the slogan of the Bill Clinton campaign. It's the economy. And it, it originally started just some words on a wall in the, in the campaign headquarters in Little Rock, and it turned into a de facto campaign slogan. Because do you remember the, any of the other slogans that came out of that campaign? Nope. You remember that one, don't you? Yeah. Because it's the economy. Now, Clinton would go on behind that, would actually say, would actually win the election uh, and become president the next year as he was inaugurated. One of the things, though, that James Carville, who was the guy that came up with that slogan, if you remember James Carville, I vividly remember him. Remember, he, thin guy, bald head, and you had that, that, that accent about him, and he just talked, boy, he was kind of a sharp as he talked, and man, you could hear it, you know? And he really just popped out as you listened to him. But what he figured out and hit on is this basic thing, that innate to our American idealism, innate to who we are as a people, is financial security and prosperity. He figured out that you know how you, you defeat a sitting president who just won a war? You get at the heart of what the people are really concerned about, their financial security and prosperity. You know, he figured out if you can get the people to believe that electing this other candidate, Bill Clinton, would give them their financial well-being and security, that they could win. And they did. Now, why in the world do I tell you these, this, this story about a CNN war and it's the economy? What's well, this reason? One is... We as Christians are actually at war. Just like we were actually at war in, our, in the early 1990s, we as Christians are actually at war. And the second thing is I want us to see is that like the fiscal economy, the faith economy, the economy of the gospel needs to be ingrained into us. And what I mean by that is that prayer needs to be ingrained into our very identity. The very fabric of what makes us, us. The very identity of who we are as a people. Prayer needs to be ingrained into it. 
So this morning, that's what I want to get at. But here's the problem. What we see is that sometimes the battle in front of us, what's immediately in front of us, the battle we have to fight, it actually causes us to forget that we are really fighting another war. We see what's immediately in front of us, and we forget we are fighting another war. And thus, we hope in and are desperate for, and we depend on the wrong thing. Think about it for a moment in your life. No doubt, there are many here, and I, and I know of many, that are walking through seasons of their life right now, fighting cancer, or walking with a family member that's fighting cancer, dealing with, with um, tumors that are having to be operated on, that they're looking and financially they're trying to see how will my finances outlast this? How will I make it? There's others that are, that are looking and, and unsure about their financial future. Where will the next, the next dollar come from that I need? And, and I'll just tell you, the worries of this world, as, as Pastor Earl let us know, what we are anxious about, we can become so worried about that we forget the real war we're involved in. You see, I want to point out three things this morning from the passage that Paul makes. Three points. One is we truly are at war. We really are. As Christians, we are at war. Secondly, our central concern is standing firm in the gospel. And thirdly, that prayer needs to be ingrained into our personal and corporate identity. These are the three things I want to argue from this passage. And so, if you would, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. And I want to walk us through this to make these three basic points. That we are at war, our central concern is standing firm in the gospel, and that prayer needs to be ingrained into our personal and corporate identity. Well, first of all, Christians are actually at war. Look, look at Ephesians 6, 10 through 13 as the passage begins. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. You see verse 10. According to verse 10, we need to do what? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might and do what? Put on the whole armor of God. Now, that that's visually just shows us there is a battle taking place. Right? We will spend in future weeks uh, to come looking at this whole armor of God and, and what that means in more detail, looking at the Old Testament background in Isaiah and what it has to say. But the basic thing we need to say, look at and see here is it indicates we are at war, right? You're girding up, you are putting on armor for a reason. It's because you're at war. And notice the why behind it. Because you have to stand against the schemes of the devil, because, why we stand against the schemes of the devil? Because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. 
You see, what's right in front of us is not the real war. There may be battles in it, but the real war is what? Against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The real war is not what you see in front of you. It's what you can't see. It is not seen by physical eyes. The real war lies in the spiritual realm. And that's the war we're in. We are in the battle in the spiritual realm. Therefore, Paul says, do what? Look at that. Take up the whole armor of God so you can withstand in the evil day. Stand against it, stand up to it, resist it, repel it. What are you supposed to stand against? The schemes of the devil. Interesting enough, that word schemes is where we get method from. It's actually uh, methodia. You can hear it in the word when I pronounce it in Greek. We get the word method from it. It may help you understand. The methods the devil uses to attack against us. Right? This is why he says you have to be armored for war. Right? It has this, this strong picture of standing together. And we'll talk in future weeks about Romans and how the Roman army would together go into battle with shields, protecting one another. But this morning, what I want us to see here is we are in a real battle spiritually against the devil. And it says you are you're the schemes of the devil. Realize what this tells us, there is someone actively making strategic moves and decisions to win the war at hand. I mean, that's, you know you're at war. You know you're not at war if you're the only one fighting, right? If you're Don Quixote attacking a, a windmill, right? You're not at war, right? You're in delusion. But you know you're at war when there is someone actively seeking to bring real harm and destruction to you. And that's what Paul says. There is an active, real person, as it were. In this case, the person who is the person of the devil, the spiritual being the devil, actively making schemes, devising schemes, developing methods, executing upon them to bring war to us. Right? We may not have picked the fight, but you're in it. And that, that's what Scripture is telling us. We have to see, when we are seeing this world, it is not just this benign, safe place that you're okay in. There is someone actively seeking to bring about real damage and destruction. And his name is the devil. Paul labels it very clearly. So I want us to see, and we'll build on this in the future, that we are truly at war. And if we, if we can understand that, and not just understand, right? Okay, I intellectually understand that the scripture just said we're at war with someone. But if we understand there's actually a real war going on and believe it, it will start to change our very behavior if it hasn't already. Because I start to see things very differently. What's right in front of me may be a scheme or method for me to forget what the real war is about. Right? You know what that's called, right? There's, there's a military strategy for it. It's called disinformation. If I can make you believe something that's not true, it will take you away from what is true. Does that make sense? I mean, this is one of the fundamental spiritual battles of the Christian faith. It is battle over what is true and real. 
And Paul is saying to us what is true and real is there's a true, real war going on in our lives, not only individually, but corporately as a body as well. I mean, realize that's what Ephesians is. It's a letter written to churches to say, you need to know and be aware of what's going on. You're in a real war. The second thing he says is the central concern is we stand firm in the gospel. So we're in a real war. And it's, notice how he talks about what we're doing in this war. You stand firm is the translation. Look there in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to, what? Be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Notice that word. It's, it's actually the Greek word histomy. It's going to get used again here in a second. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in he- evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand. You know what that is? Antihistamine. Now, that's not the, that's not, we don't talk about antihistamines. This isn't because you're sneezing, okay? All right. This is to stand against. It's to stand your ground is the idea. Right? Withstand is, withstand doesn't mean I just take it, I don't just cower. It actually means I am actively repelling what is coming against me. So I am standing, I am withstanding the evil day, and having done all that, what am I supposed to do? Stand firm. Now, it's just the translator's decision because it gets the emphasis there. The word is the exact same. They could have just translated it stand. Stand firm is the idea. Don't give ground, right? I mean, this is, if you've ever seen those battle scenes, right, where, where like Roman armies are taking on a, an invader and they shield up, right? You ever watch, the, if you've ever seen these, they're, they're helpful because it gives us a visual picture they have their large shields that they can shield up, and they can take another and another behind them can stand to shield over. So here's these flaming darts that we're going to talk about, not this week, but later, they're coming. That protects them. It, it literally gives them shelter from incoming enemy armaments that are designed to kill them. But now they engage. The two forces come. Boom! And you don't go backwards. What you see is they gather together, you bend low, you get your legs under it, you get your shield in front of you, and you stand firm and you push. And you can hear the scraping feet. (laughs) What? Forward. (laughs) Forward. (laughs) Forward. See, it's it's not retreat. I'm not backing up. I am standing firm. And this is what Paul says. Stand firm. And then he says in verse 14, what does he say? He says it again. Stand therefore. It's the imperative. See, here's the point. The central concern of this passage is that we stand firm. And you will notice I use the phrase, and I want to explain why, in the gospel. Now, why do I say that? Because here it says stand firm. Here's why I say in the gospel. Look at verses 18 through 20. It says in verse 18, picking up, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And Paul says, and, or also, including who? Me. Pray for me. Pray what for you, Paul? What does Paul say? 
that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains and I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Isn't it interesting? Paul says, pray what? He doesn't say, pray that I be released. Now don't get me wrong. He, he would love to get released. Read the book of Philippians. He's, he actually is hopeful at times. I'm going to get released from this imprisonment. I see it coming. Pray for that. And by the way, go look if you look in the book of Acts. What, is the, what does the church do when Peter ends up in prison? They pray all night. We want him out. But Paul's chief concern is not, get me out of here. Paul's chief concern is, I am an ambassador. It's a military concept. It's a political concept. I am one sent with a message from my king. I am an ambassador for who? Christ. To bring his message. What? The gospel. So pray that I would not, I mean, just think about this. This is Paul. Paul says, pray that I would be bold, to put it in negative terms, that I don't chicken out and just stay silent because these guys are looking at me going, you're in prison, you know? You, you could be facing death. And Paul says, I could, I could remain silent, but pray that I would be bold enough to proclaim the mystery of the gospel to those who are around me in the midst of my circumstances. His primary concern is not deliver me from these circumstances. It is what? Advance the gospel with my life. This is why I say when I read this, what is Paul trying to say? Stand firm in the gospel. Now we could also make extended argument from Ephesians about this gospel that he's given and what it is. Right? I mean, you go back to Ephesians 1. It is the gospel of grace. You are saved by grace. Let me proclaim that. I'm not saved by release from this, this prison I'm in. Because the real war I'm in is not me against this Roman government. The real war I'm in is me and my brothers and sisters in Christ under the kingship of my Lord to advance against the devil and all he wishes to accomplish. We're gonna, we're gonna, that's our war at hand. And Paul says, don't let me get distracted by the circumstances that I am and forget I am in a battle, a war for the gospel. And so he says, let me stand firm in that. And notice how he says to do it. One, and we'll spend more time again here later, you put on the whole armor of God. Well, if, if I summarize what's the whole armor of God, he uses this great metaphor, this amazing analogy that he's going to use that comes both, he, he, he steals Greco-Roman ideals, he's going to reflect back to Isaiah. Now some of you are going, I've got to read Isaiah. I'm not going to tell you the chapter. Just read the whole book, you'll figure it out. It's a long book, by the way. Um, but we're going to look at this and what it means that we put on the whole armor. But notice the words. It is the armor of what? Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, the word of God. And we're going to talk about how God uses that in our lives to, to gird us up to be in this war that we're in. But then notice the other thing that he assumes, that he, just, he says, you're supposed to be doing this, what? Verse 18, praying at all times. That's the third point that I want us to remember this morning. 
We're at war. We're supposed to stand firm in the gospel. And part of that, an essential part of it, is that prayer needs to be ingrained into our identity because we are praying at all times. Look, we as a people of the Hills Church, both personally, individually, and collectively at a body, need to have prayer ingrained into us. Now, this is not new to us, okay? This is, you need to realize, this is not a sermon to shame us or guilt us in. We're not praying enough. Look, I think most of us will admit we don't pray enough, right? We, we look back and think, I could pray more. And I, I want to end with that later. We'll talk about that. But that's not the point here. This isn't, you should be sitting there going, man, I am, I am ashamed that I don't pray enough. Maybe you are, that, fair enough. But that's not the point here. The point here is I want us to see is we need to pray more. We have good foundations. There, there are many in here, if not most, and I'll be bold, hopefully all, but at least a lot of us that already pray a lot. We are to, that is a good and commendable thing, all right? I'm not trying to just puff you up. I'm just saying don't look lightly on what God has done in our lives by bringing us to prayer already. And this is, I was looking, I actually, uh, Anthony and I were looking through floor plans of our church and and looking at at just our facilities and how they lay out, and we found an old floor plan, uh, old architectural design that dated back to 1985 when we originally built the uh, room back here, the prayer chapel. I mean, you realize now that's over 30 years ago, well actually over 40 years ago, isn't it? Or I guess at 40, I got to do the math. I'm not a, I was a math major, but I can't add, subtract, multiply, or divide. We'll talk about that later. Where's the calculator? But over 30 years ago, and we're going towards 40 pretty fast. My point being is this. Prayer is not new to us. But it also should not become commonplace to us. It needs to be so ingrained into us, it is what we go to. Because we realize we are at war. So if you want to be at war, you better make sure, or if you are at war, you want to make sure that you are communicating with the one who understands the strategy of the war. And so we need to be praying. It needs to be ingrained into our very identity. Notice how verse 18, how how it speaks of it. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Praying in the Spirit. What does that mean? You know, similar language is used over in Jude chapter 20. Uh, we actually, I think, read it last week, or at least it was in, a, in our, our bulletin, our order of service, that Jude 20 says we are to pray in the Holy Spirit. It actually uses, it adds the word hagios, holy, to pray in the Holy Spirit. But if you've got your Bibles, turn over to Romans 8. I want to make an argument, and this is the argument I'm going to advance, that praying in the Spirit is this. It is being led by the Holy Spirit to pray according to God's truth and for the will of our Lord. Let me say that again. Here's the argument I'm going to advance in these verses about what Paul is saying to us. To pray in the Spirit, praying in the Spirit is being led by the Holy Spirit to pray according to God's truth, right? What is true and for the will of the Lord. We are praying for the will of the Lord to be accomplished, for it to come, out, come about. All right? Look at Romans 8, 28. 
This is, everybody, look, those who are in Christ, Romans 8, 28 is a go-to verse for it, is it, us, is it not? As we stare suffering and troubles and uncertainty in the face, we look at Romans 8, 28 and, and how encouraging that is to us, right? Because what does Romans 8, 28 tell us? That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. You like that verse? Yeah, I like, I got it highlighted, written down. I got it all over the place, right? I'll tell you, when I, even yesterday, as Earl and I were making a hospital visit, it's one of the verses that I prayed over a dear sister in Christ as she stares down having a brain tumor. That she would not forget this is true. But let's not forget what comes right before it. Notice Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. You ever felt that way? God, I don't even know what to pray. Well, pray in the Spirit. Because guess who knows what to pray? The Holy Spirit does. But the Spirit himself does what? intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words in verse 27 he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes intercedes for the saints how how does he intercede for us according to our will according to our whims he intercedes according to the will of god you ever felt like i don't know what the will of god is you ever felt that way? Chuck Swindoll, I remember years ago, said, part of our problem as Christians, sometimes we're right in the middle of God's will and we have no idea. Right? Isn't it nice to know you don't have to be omniscient? Because the omniscient one, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit does what on our behalf? He intercedes for us according to the will of God. Any of you ever prayed for something, and then later you're thinking, I don't exactly, God, I didn't exactly mean it that way. I'd, I'd like to rephrase what I said. You ever had one of those? Right. Some of you want to put footnotes on your prayers. You ever had that? I pray for patience, Lord. Just give it to me quickly, right? You ever had one of those? God, deliver me from suffering. Make sure it doesn't hurt, right? I mean, seriously, you have, I'm, okay, I'm just telling you, I, I don't like pain. I was the kid, I, I'll tell you a quick story. I can tell you there's a long story behind this, but one time I did something my dad told me not to do, and he gave me a choice. He said, son, do you want to be spanked or do you want to be grounded? Grounded. That's exactly right. Amen. That's exactly what I chose. Ground me. And my dad, being the wise man that he is, you know what he came back later? He said, son, you know, I just don't think grounding's enough. I don't think you're taking it seriously enough. (laughs) I got grounded. I got spanked. And by the way, the money I inadvertently help another guy steal, I had to pay back twi- twofold. You can talk to me about it later. All I'm saying is when dad says stay home for dinner, stay home for dinner. All right? I don't like pain either. But if what is required for me to fight the war that I'm in is to be in the fellowship of the suffering of my Lord, that is exactly what the will of God is. And so sometimes, don't worry, you may get your prayers not slightly right, right? 
you need to realize, and here's something about prayer. Prayer is not a magic incantation. Right? You've seen those shows with magic, right? I mean, you know what I'm talking about? I, I think I mentioned a lot. I mean, Harry Potter or, I don't know, Sesame Street, a la peanut butter sandwich. You know, you got the... You know what the, the, the danger of knowing the magic words is, right? That you'll actually get what you said. There's long jokes about this, right? I mean, we got all kind of jokes about genies in a lamp. You, you know, you, you, you wish for things, and that's, they give you literally what you said. Okay, our God is not a genie. He doesn't just literally give us without his omniscient will involved. He knows those things. Is it not a great comfort to know you pray earnestly and honestly and may not know exactly the right words to say, but what and who more specifically will intercede on your behalf? The Spirit of God will, according to the will of God. That's why Romans 8.28 is so hopeful. Because for those who are called according to the purpose of God, for those that love God, what's going to happen? All things, including even your not-quite-so-right prayers, are going to do what? Work together for your good. Now, I realize you can pray outside the will of God. We can pray selfishly, right? We can do those things. And what our Lord does is he says, but the Spirit intercedes in such a way that he can, by his grace, even overcome those things and work on our lives. And sometimes we have to do it the very hard way. That's how God works. But look also in Philippians 3.3. You may remember our sermon series through Philippians. Just notice the, the, the coupling together of some phrases here. Philippians 3.3, For we are the circumcision who worship how? By the Spirit of God and do what? Glory in Christ Jesus and don't do what? Put no confidence in the flesh. You see, by the Spirit of God there tells us it means it is coupled with glory in Christ and not glorying or putting confidence in the flesh. And this is why I'm saying when we pray, when we say we pray by the Spirit, what is it going to lead us to do? Not put our confidence in fleshly things of this world. Because remember, we're at war, but we're not at war against what? Flesh and blood. Rather, we're going to be led to glory in Christ Jesus, right? That's, that's where the Spirit's going to lead us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I'll read verses 7, 10 through 12. But we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God, which is decreed before the ages for our glory. Okay, that's just something that will break your brain one day. Think about the secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages, before everything is created, for our glory. What? You did what before I was even around? You decreed things for, for my glory. That's amazing. But notice what he goes on to say. These things God has revealed to us through what? Or who? Through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? Right? We don't have that kind of access is Paul's point. We can understand what God reveals to us, but don't be so arrogant to think you can get at and understand all the inner workings of how God thinks, what he imagines and decrees. 
But God understands what God thinks and decrees and decides. And he uses that analogy, says, you look at that in humans, right? You can't know my every intent, but internally I know what I intend. And he says, well, analogously the Spirit knows what the Father wants. And he says, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except who? The Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Isn't that amazing? The spirit from God, we receive that spirit that we might understand the things freely given to us. You see, what Paul is saying is, you want to know what to pray for in the spirit? It's be, or for the things of God, the will of your Lord, it's because the spirit's been given to us, and we now can understand those things. Before, they were hidden to us. But now God has revealed them to us, and the Spirit brings that about in our life. And, and, and let me just, and here's the other point. Our Lord told us that this is what the Spirit would do for us, that he would reveal God's truth and our Lord's will to us. Jesus himself told us the Spirit would come so that we would know God's truth and that it would lead us to our Lord's will, that the Spirit would actually tell us our Lord's will so that we would know it. John 14, 15, and 16. I'm going to read three passages out of here. John 14, 15 through 17. If you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. That's, that's what he says. If you love Christ, not if you want to earn your salvation, not if you feel a debt to me. That's not what this is based off. If you love me, not if you've been shamed into obeying me. That's not what he's doing. Literally saying, if you love compels you, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Well, okay, that's great. How am I going to know this? Well, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you on a part-time basis. No, forever. Who is that helper? He is even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells where? With you and will be in you. You see, this is, we, we pray by the Spirit because the Spirit's been given to us. Why? So we can know how to love our Lord properly, right? It, it, the Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit helps us to rightly understand the Word of God that we can follow what our Lord has commanded. Not out of obligation, not to save ourselves. That would stand in the face of what Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. It literally is so that we can show how much we love our Lord. And the Spirit is sent though, so we can understand how to do that. Notice in John 15, 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will do what? Bear witness about me, about Jesus. You see, the Spirit's role is to bring attention to our Lord, to bear witness to Him so that we would know who Christ is, what He's asked of us, so that we'd fall wholeheartedly after Him. Or John 16, 13 through 15, when the Spirit of truth comes, okay, when He comes, what's He going to do? Well, look at the second part of that, that sentence. He will guide you into all the truth. By the way, this is why when we read it and it says, Know the truth, and the truth will do what? Set you free? 
Okay, I, I've seen, I think it's over Library of Congress where I took the picture. I can't remember. There's different places. But you know what? This is responding very specifically, not to the generic body of truth. It is literally pointing to know who the Spirit points you to. And who is that? Christ. Know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And he says, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will do what? Glorify me. How does the Spirit glorify him? And there in John 16, 14. For he will take what is mine and do what? Declare it to you. And all the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is why my argument is, when we talk about what are we praying for and what is going on, that praying in the Spirit is being led by the Holy Spirit to pray according to God's truth, very specifically what he's revealed to us in the Word of God, and for the will of our Lord. That's what we're praying when we pray in the Spirit. It's because he's in us, and now we can pray according to the truth of God and for his will. Prayer is not just some magic incantation. It is communication, pleading with the very creator of the universe who has saved us through his miraculous work of the gospel. That should be ingrained into our bones. I get to ask, communicate with the creator of the universe for things. And what I want to ask for is what his will is and that he would do it. And then he finishes with this phrase, with all prayer and supplication. Now, the question becomes there, is prayer and supplication two entirely different things? And I, I would tell you, no, it's not. There's an extended biblical argument I think we advance, but let me just say what Paul is doing here, and you're going to see this by illustration, is he is intensifying ask God. That's what he's doing. He is emphasizing the fact we need to pray for one another. Look at, look at verse 14, then, then, then 18 through 20. or Excuse me, uh, verses 18 down to 20. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, doing what? Make supplication, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. What Paul is saying is pray ask ask god for his will to be done is that not exactly what our lord taught us to pray in the lord's prayer and by his example in the garden of gethsemane our father who art in heaven hallowed be your name and do what lord your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven what does our Lord do when he stands in the face of execution? If this cup can pass from me, let it pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done, Father. Do you understand? If our Lord would face circumstances in the face that would take his very life for us and that he would have to bear sin in our place, and he said, that crushing punishment 
and condemnation for sin. I will take upon myself for the people of God. And what does he say? I'll do that if that's what it requires for your will to be done. Do you pray like that for one another? For yourself, God, even if it requires suffering, bring about your will in my life and in the life of others. Yeah, that's a, that's a heavy thought. But we should be praying for one another that God's will would be done. So in conclusion, here, here's my basic point. We need to pray together and for one another because we are in a war spiritually. Remember, we are at war. We are called to stand firm. And we need to have ingrained into us prayer. So that's the kind of people we need to be. Father, I thank you that Paul would show to us through the work of the Holy Spirit in his life that indeed we are at war lest we think we are not. And Father, that we are to stand firm in the gospel and to do so, Father, in addition to putting on the whole armor of God, we must be those people who pray at all times. So, Father, I pray, help us, that we would be a praying people. God, may we build on those who have come before us and have laid years of foundation of prayer among us. And may we adopt wholeheartedly in our lives a commitment to pray and cry out to you that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, in our lives as it is done in our Lord's life in our body because we are the body.